National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning. It's Wednesday, and you've joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security. And we're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, from across the nations, and sometimes from around the world to help us learn more about national security challenges and opportunities. We're going to have an in-depth discussion today on unmanned platforms, which have grown wildly in popularity and function for both domestic and international use since we last discussed them here on this show in May of 2021. Today we have an expert on how unmanned platforms were being used to support domestic government needs like law enforcement and for international operations like intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, also known as ISR, as well as to strike targets. While we will likely focus more heavily on unmanned aerial platforms, we're also going to cover unmanned platforms on the ocean surface, uh, undersea platforms, and even unmanned platforms that operate on the ground. With us to explore this topic today is Dr. Marina Miron, who is currently a postdoctoral researcher in the War Studies Department at King's College London in England. She completed a Bachelor of Arts in Politics and American Studies with joint honors and a Master of Arts in War and Contemporary Conflict, both at the University of Nottingham. Marina was then awarded a doctoral scholarship at the University of New South Wales at the Australian Defence Force Academy in Canberra, Australia. In February of 2019, Marina successfully completed her doctoral studies in the area of military strategy with a focus on counterinsurgency campaigns in Peru, Turkey, and Sri Lanka. Marina has also taught short courses related to strategic studies, intelligence, and both counterinsurgency and counterterrorism at various establishments, most notably at the NATO School in Oberammergau, Germany, at the NATO Center of Excellence for Defense Against Terrorism in Ankara, Turkey, and the Colombian War College in Bogota. In addition to her research, Marina is a member of the Center for Military Ethics based at the Defense Studies Department at King's College London. She's working on topics related to the military and military medical ethics, as well as focusing on delivering military ethical education to the Colombian Armed Forces that is country-specific. She's an honorary researcher in military science at the Colombian War College, as well as the Colombian Center for Military Education. Dr. Marina Marone's research interests include strategic and military studies, multi-domain operations, military technology, insurgency and counterinsurgency, Russia, the Middle East, Latin America, as well as military ethics. Marina is fluent in Spanish, but she's also fluent in English, German, and Russian, has near fluency in Ukrainian, and she reads Italian, Arabic, Hebrew, and Turkish. Dr. Marina Marone, welcome to National Security This Week. Hello, and thank you for the invitation. It's an honor to be here, and I'm very much looking forward to our discussion. So where are you sitting right now for our discussion? We're on Zoom. Well, I'm sitting in Spain, in Alicante, right next to the coast and next to the Special Forces headquarters, so quite a strategic location, you might say. A a beautiful location, if I recall my geography as well. Absolutely, that's correct. 
a, a good place to be on the beach in the summertime. Uh, Dr. Marone, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, there's a lot to cover today, and I want to make sure we tap into your expertise. You've joined us today to discuss the current state of affairs of unmanned platforms. And, and maybe it's probably a good idea if we just start with some of the basics so we're all on the same page, you and me and all of our listeners, uh, as we get into more complex topics linked to unmanned platforms. So what is it that constitutes an unmanned platform today? Well, um, I, I wanted to break it down, actually, because there is a lot of misunderstanding. Um, people mix up terms like unmanned and autonomous. So what an unmanned platform is, is essentially something that a remote operator can control. So it's a platform that can operate on its own. Like you remember those toy cars and we have a remote control and then we, we can race. So that would be... Um, Strictly speaking, an unmanned platform because there is no human operator inside the platform. So that's kind of the basics. It's very simple to understand, but it gets more complex as we get into kind of different kinds of unmanned platforms. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the different kinds of platforms that are out there in the unmanned arena. Well, Gladly, because um, most of the time when people think about unmanned platform, they think drones. However, there are so many other kinds. So if we look at different domains from uh, from the um, land, air, sea, and even space domains. So in all of those domains, there are unmanned platforms. However, none of them have um, become as popular as unmanned aerial platforms. However, sea platforms uh, have been developed for to solve specific missions so you have a, a sort of a u-boat operating on its own on the sea or kind of uh, ocean floor for instance to look for mines several countries have those the uk for instance um, there are other platforms which are used as kind of boats for for patrolling coasts, there are those used for kind of uh, environmental purposes. So we have those kinds of platforms. Uh, some of them are semi-controlled. Some of them have operators. For instance, the, um, the Spanish Coastal Guard uses them in Ceuta to patrol the coast, but you can actually put people into the boat if needed. Otherwise, it can um, patrol the coast on its own, so it, it can navigate without a human operator being on board. Then we have, um, let's say, pseudo-satellites, high-altitude pseudo-satellites. They are not strictly used in space, or so they're still in our atmosphere. And those are used uh, mostly for telecommunications in order to, to, to provide better coverage. But they can also be used for reconnaissance purposes. And they can be in altitude up to 20 kilometers from the Earth's surface. They're quite big and they're quite uh, fancy, but nobody really talks about those because they're not very spectacular, they're not used in combat operations, so they don't get that kind of PR. But they're quite useful in terms of covering um, communications in different locations or taking high-resolution images of uh, uh, specific objects. Um, and then we obviously have the land domain where we have um, more specifically from kind of from the military domain, robots for 
the mining purposes the Russians have um, uran-6 and uran-2, I believe, um, that have been used in Syria for demining operations in order not to put any troops at risk. So they can be quite useful for those purposes. And we have kind of different uh, unmanned platforms on land for civilian uses as well. And the last domain is obviously kind of the aerial use of what everybody understands as drones. However, it's, um, I would say, it's very dangerous to talk about drones, thinking about predator or reaper, because most people think, oh, that's that's the reaper uh, uh, with Hellfire missiles. So that's danger. And, and that's kind of the reputation that drones have been getting. However, there are many other drones, and it depends on the altitude they are operating in and the tasks that they are designed to solve. And so we were thinking drones in the military domain, but there are also a lot of drones used for agricultural purposes used by the law enforcement, used for for um, different kind of uh, protection of objects. And so solving both civilian, uh, for, uh, civilian and military tasks, uh, it should be said that the, the idea to use those unmanned aerial systems comes from the military, so it kind of spilled over into the civilian domain. However, we have to be very careful to, to differentiate. And then, as I said, we have different classes of drones. We have very small drones that can weigh up to 400 grams. Not sure how much it is in pounds, but that's that's very light. Very, very light. Pounds. That's very light. <laughs> And then we have something like a like a Reaper, which is an aircraft, like like a normal civilian aircraft in in, in size or in in approximation. So we we have to differentiate between those and well, we have also civilian drones for taking photography. You know, DJI Mavic uh, will probably be familiar to most of us now with a uh, war in Ukraine and the uh, use these drones have seen there. So it's it's quite a wide spectrum when it comes to aerial use of such platforms, and that's probably the most controversial one. So when we think about these these unmanned platforms, we we have to always think about whether they they're on the ground, whether they're undersea unmanned uh, vessels or uh, unmanned surface vessels or or unmanned aerial uh, vehicles (UAVs). They all have some sort of propulsion system, so they have some sort of fuel requirement, or even if they're electrical powered, they have to have a battery component to it. They all they all have to have a communications capability. They're up there because they have some sort of a sensor capability, and to the most extent, for so so far, the vast majority of them, uh, they have a human controlling them in some way, shape, or form. Is that is that a good summary of how we should think about these things? They're they're being controlled by humans. They have all these technologies embedded in them so that they can move, uh, collect intelligence, or in the case of a Reaper, uh, unleash uh, weapons on targets. Yes, absolutely. It's a pretty good summary. I think what we should add probably is a maintenance crew, or for instance, if we're talking about aerial platforms, depending on how they launch. So you you, you might ha- have a crew on site mm. in order to, to launch the drone um, and to retrieve it again and then this crew is not necessarily collocated with an operator the operator can be anywhere in the world 
specifically um, when we're talking about uh, the likes of uh, Predator or Reaper. And so we have the crew on the ground who will be able to do maintenance and so, and sustainment of drones as well. So you mentioned uh, n- not to confuse unmanned with autonomous. Uh, so maybe you could define for us a little bit where we are at in autonomous uh, unmanned platforms. Uh, I want to make sure that people have differentiated that for for our show today, that the autonomous operation is something very different than just an unmanned platform. Yeah, so the autonomous part is very difficult because um, that would assume that whatever drone we're talking about, whatever unmanned vessel we're talking about would be able to operate on its own. And there are ways of designing that and with today's computational capabilities and the development of AI and what especially what we have seen in the past year was different language models uh, trying to solve different tasks such as chat GPT, which has brought up some concerns even in, in, in terms of what effect it might have. So the idea is to use this artificial uh, narrow intelligence, and by that I mean not intelligence that can solve all sorts of tasks and replace a human, but solve a very specific set of tasks such as playing chess, right? So to use those kinds of algorithms in order to integrate them into an unmanned vessel in order to solve specific tasks, one of the examples would be using a robot for for demining, right? So you would have some sort of an optical sensor, and this um, integrated AI would be then able to say, this is a mine and it needs to be cleared in, in a very kind of simplistic terms. And then the then it would give a command, go there, you know, pick it up, disable it, whatever whatever you, you're doing with it. And and then that that would be kind of one cycle of of a mission. And so here you wouldn't have a human operator sitting somewhere and and, and looking uh, at the camera footage and kind of moving this robot to see okay where where could there be mines. This system is designed to automatically detect the threat and eliminate the threat. So to say without any involvement of the human. And so now we're coming to kind of um, to a more difficult question because there are also semi-autonomous systems where a system would not be necessarily led by the human, but the human would be over the loop, meaning whatever the system does, the human has the power to interfere or has to approve a specific task especially when it comes to strike to to systems with strike capabilities so the ai in the system would do the target acquisition and then this is how for instance the um counterterrorism campaign was conducted by the united states when drones were used to for high um for eliminating high value targets uh, and so the operator would not be the person deciding whether, you know, first you kind of watch the target for a long time, two weeks or so, then you would have to 
wait for an opportune mo- moment, communicate it back up to the chain of command, get approval that goes all the way down, and, and then you decide whether to conduct the strike or not. Now, in, in, in an autonomous system, the system itself would eliminate the need of kind of these approvals and would then make a decision, which has all sorts of problems with it. <laughs> but that's kind of the idea of autonomous systems. Okay. So the way to think about it, a uh, quick summary is semi-autonomous means that the, let's say the UAV can operate on its own. It flies where it thinks it needs to go. It's picking up all this uh, information off the ground or out of the air because of the sensors that are on board. When it comes to a point where it needs to make a decision, the human is alerted and the human steps in and makes a decision and then the platform carries out the mission. In a truly autonomous operation, uh, the platform itself does all of those things, makes all the decisions on its own and acts on its own based on its programming. Is that a good summary? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for an excellent summary. That's that's a, <laughs> basically a, a much better way of saying what I was trying no, to no, say. No, no, no. You, you gave us the details, and that's what makes the show interesting. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. Marina Miron from the King's College London in United Kingdom, and we're discussing the current state of unmanned platforms for both domestic and international use. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. So, Dr. Marone, I I know you recently penned an excellent paper covering the domestic perception of the use of UAVs in the United Kingdom, and this is primarily, as I understand it, for emergency response. If we could, let's consider the useful aspects of unmanned platforms for things like search and rescue, emergency response, law enforcement, and other topics before we kind of step into this international arena. Uh, tell us about that research and, and what you found regarding how people in the U.K., the United Kingdom, feel about unmanned aerial platforms buzzing around overhead. Well, so a little bit of background on that specific study. Um, the study was conducted in a small town, which is located next to the Heathrow Airport, meaning that the people who were surveyed were already kind of predisposed to a lot of noise and a lot of air traffic. So with with that caveat in mind, what we did, we decided um, to see, so we have different actors who can use drones. We have uh, kind of the government and and the law enforcement that can use drones for, for policing missions. This was a private corporate actor offering this kind of security service. So acting essentially as an intermediary to offer um, security services to people who want to to, um, monitor their property or who want a a faster um, emergency response. So in a sense, um, that that was kind of the idea to see how they they, they think about um, the use of drones for that specific purpose. And so what we did, um, first we ran a survey asking the population what they generally thought about drones and how they would perceive the use of drones for emergency response. And then we we have also asked some interesting questions regarding how they perceive new technology. Are they technology savvy? How do they perceive their kind of privacy? How concerned are they about their privacy? So would they be uh, willing to share their personal data with a government body? Or as in order to improve emergency response, well, would they rather share their 
that data with a private car corporate actor, whom would they trust more? Because when we're talking about drones, there is a kind of a concern that about the privacy, what the drones are filming, uh, such as license plates or gardens of neighboring buildings and so on. And then uh, we ran this survey and found out that people are actually not opposed. So they, they were more positive towards the use of drones when it comes to um, emergency response. And interestingly enough, people were much more willing to share their private data with a corporate actor rather than the government. So they were less trusting than the government. They were not concerned about their security, but they were concerned about their privacy. And privacy was one of the um, predictive variables that influenced their perception of the usefulness of drones for the purpose um, of emergency missions. What we did then, we decided to see how flying actual drones would alter their perception. So then we conducted drone flights. We didn't tell the people when these drone flights would be taking place. So we flew them um, in a radius of kind of uh, 500 meters from, from the location of the companies that provided us with those drones. And we managed to get the people in that radius to, to answer the second survey in terms of whether their perception was altered. And we also asked them if they have seen a drone during, during those two weeks. Um, it should be said that it was during COVID, so it, it, it was very difficult because people wouldn't be leaving their homes. So we, we had to ask those questions as well, how many people were homebound, but luckily not many. And so the interesting thing is that the perception hasn't really changed. So the overall score for, for, the, for, for, for the usefulness of drones for emergency purposes um, was about four out of five on the Likert scale. And the variables that influence that perception were technology savviness. So the, logically enough, people who, who were more technologically savvy were more likely to accept drones in that specific role and people who didn't have as many concerns about their data, about their privacy. There, there was a special question, the special variable about their security perception because using drones in that way would, um, by extension, improve their security. Nobody was concerned about security. so. The interesting finding was that technology acceptance and privacy trumped security. Of course, we have to say that it was kind of limited, but these factors are indicative from kind of the key stakeholder in which direction we're going and, you know, what concerns people have when it comes to uh, the use of drones in, in, in a civilian airspace. So as we look at technology development because i mean this technology for unmanned platforms and their capabilities it just keeps getting better and better all the time the, the concepts of distributed computing and cooperative threat engagement both of which are already being used for military applications in in uav operations darpa demonstrated this capability almost five years ago now this cooperative uh, or distributed computing and cooperative threat engagement 
How, how do these capabilities impact your thinking regarding drone use domestically, especially having done this research so far? Based on your research, what, what, what should people fear <laughs> about the use of drones in domestic operations, and, and which fears are just overblown? Well, I, I mean, there are, obviously, um, just to put it in simple terms, so what you're referring to essentially are drone swarms. Yes, just you, you know, um, so when we're talking about drone swarms in a kind of a, in a domestic setting, I can see many uses for them, especially when it comes um, to surveillance, um, to surveilling specific areas. They can also be used to monitor big areas to prevent forest fires. Um, they they can be used in agriculture, and so on. And obviously, it is. They can be used in law enforcement, also for for, for monitoring uh, potential suspects. And they because using a, a swarm of drones is always much more beneficial in 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 those terms than using a single drone. Because something can happen. One has to assume that those drones are communicating among themselves. The problem is that. Um, to what extent are people ready to accept it? Say, if we're using it to um, prevent forest fires, and these drones are not anywhere in the vicinity where they might create a lot of noise, where people might be bothered, or where they are flying over somebody else's property who might be tempted to shoot them down. Because, um, you know, I think that um, the perception, the popular perception, will differ between those living in the city and those living in the country. So we have to be very careful when thinking about integration of such technologies without the proper explanation and without the proper involvement of um, the key stakeholders, which is essentially the population that will be affected in one way or another by those drones. And, and I think there are a lot of benefits of them, but I think there is also a lot of misunderstanding as to what these drones are capable of and a lot of negative perceptions when it comes to drones in general. And there have been studies, and that was not our study, but different studies that have done preliminary service uh, asking people about drones specifically for policing, telling them, well, actually, it could save policemen's lives and it would make uh, missions much more successful in terms of crime prevention, in terms of risk reduction. And, you know, when you explain it to people, then they seem to be much more open um, and less um, concerned about the use of drones. But also during our study, I had people writing to me and saying, I saw a drone. Is it your drone? I will call the police. <laughs> right. But our drones were never flying at that kind of altitude where a person would be able to see it. They were flying pretty high. You might hear the noise. And, and, and so you can see that the result is kind of mixed when it when it comes to the population and their perception and how you know how they can understand the benefits of why these platforms should be used and should be integrated and and how they can contribute to uh, achieving different goals in terms of security in terms of environmental protection and so on and the eu has recognized the the kind of the um the use the usefulness of drones for specific missions of civilian drones and they have been promoting they have been uh giving subsidies to companies for integrating those uh, drones in into the european airspace for a reason however when we're talking about um, drones generally speaking 
there seems to be this misconception, and I think at least until last year when the Turkish Bayraktar TB2s have been in the media, um, when Russia invaded Ukraine and the Ukrainians received those drones and started using them um, to get the Russian forces out or at least to push them back, that's when there came a shift in terms of drone perception. Hmm. And as we go forward, I think it is much more important to open up this uh, kind of black box where people think, oh, drone, it might be autonomous, it might be armed, terrorists might use it and and take some explosive to it and, you know, uh, do some damage. To open up this box and just to educate the people, you know, about the different types of drones and different useful missions, because realistically, you know, drones have been... um, developed for intelligence gathering, for reconnaissance and for surveillance. They were not meant to be armed per se. I think it was in 2001 when, when uh, the Predator drone received its Hellfire missiles for a very sp- to solve a very specific problem. And so I think um, there, sh- there needs to be more kind of uh, civil um, popular awareness. And that's where I think where government comes in uh, when it comes to policymaking and to integration to explain the the benefits of the use of drones, especially when we're talking about swarms. And if these swarms are autonomous, so if if they have a human over the loop, so all these things, even, you know, AI is creating a lot of concern. And if you combine AI with drones or even worse, drone swarms, then it's like a nightmare for many people, oh my gosh, these <laughs> things are flying over my head and they're controlled by a computer and it's not a human and we don't know what's going to happen and the world is going to end. So I think there are quite a lot of uh, uses uh, in terms of benefits, how these drones can be used also kind of for weather, for, for internet coverage and so on. Everywhere where we have signal drones being used, we could use drone swarms which would kind of reduce the chance of, of losing a drone. And, and if a drone gets lost for whatever reason, malfunction, then you kind of lose coverage or or you, you, you lose the footage or, you know, you, you cannot conduct your surveillance anymore. So, as I said, the, the, the uses, the integration of drone swarms um, are multiple in all areas and all domains. However, it's kind of the, the problem of getting it across to, to the general population. Please don't shoot them down. They are not <laughs> harmful. They are just trying to do their job and they are protecting people. Yeah. Uh, for so Let me, uh, if I could, uh, tap into your expertise just to make sure I understand the, those two terms, distributed computing and, and cooperative threat engagement with a drone swarm. As I understand it, the distributed computing piece is you have computers, onboard computers across the entire drone swarm. Every one of those computers across the swarm is working collaboratively to share information, to compute what to do. And that's where the cooperative threat engagement comes in, where if you're giving it a problem, the drone swarm, all of the computers on board, all of the drones, uh, they work together to figure out the best solution, and then they execute that solution. Is that a good way to describe those two terms? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to get into that because um, this is not something that I have seen in the civilian domain. This would be coming precisely from the military domain, where the drones are able to kind of communicate amongst each other. And different types of drones, as I said at the very beginning, they are designed to solve different tasks 
uh, let's stick to the military domain. They are designed to to uh, solve different tasks on the battlefield, such as uh, loitering munitions, for example, the Firefly developed by the Israelis. There was a specific task in mind for 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 this kamikaze drone, as, as they are known. And so we have different classes of drones um, for specific tasks. So the idea is that they would be not just uh, controlled by one central computer or by human operator being somewhere kind of outside, but they amongst themselves would be autonomous. The idea is that there is kind of a, a mesh kind of connecting them. So it, it's a little bit like if we're thinking about satellite constellations, about Starlink and, you know, how those satellites, if one satellite uh, fails, you know, then 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 it, it quickly gets replaced. And so we have to think of the swarm as like a living organism in a way, and, and like neurons communicating amongst each other. So that's that's the idea. Uh, so, Dr. Moron, we have to take just a very short break uh, to recognize our sponsor. We'll, we'll be back in just a moment. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit brings together cyber experts from industry, academia, and all levels of government to explore challenges, solutions, and opportunities in the cyber arena. The three-day summit includes speakers, workshops, discussions about advancing a cyber career, and keynote addresses by top leaders from across the cyber community. Learn more at cybersecuritysummit.org. And we're back here on National Security This Week with our guest, Dr. Marina Marone, and we're talking about uh, unmanned platforms for both domestic and international use. I have do I do have one last question on the domestic side for uh, for unmanned platforms. Uh, have we seen, and this kind of goes, sort of follows up with what we've just been talking about, these advanced capabilities uh, for surveillance, uh, reconnaissance, uh, all those kinds of things, uh, especially with drone swarms. Have we seen governments in nations anywhere in the world turn to sort of nefarious use of drones for control over their own populations. So you mentioned earlier it could be a nightmare for some people in some of the liberal democracies around the world, this idea that we have these uh, drones flying overhead. But there are places in the world where more authoritarian or dictatorship governments uh, where they could do this, uh, places where unrest maybe has emerged over uh, government policies or, or in response to corruption, government corruption. How are some of these more authoritarian governments using unmanned platforms, especially unmanned aerial platforms, to control people in their countries. Is that happening anywhere right now? Well, that's a very good question. I'm not uh, quite sure whether those two countries that I have in mind are using specifically drones, but I'm sure that drones are somewhere integrated in the ecosystem. And we have this kind of, you've probably heard of the idea of smart city. Mm. And so what, what a smart city is, essentially you have... Uh, a 1984 Big Brother-like scenario where you have surveillance everywhere, and I'm not talking about London. Uh, I'm talking about uh, Moscow because London has also a lot of CCTVs. Uh, and so, the, the, what the Russians are doing, for instance, they are using uh, facial recognition. So there is in Moscow virtually no crime because the entire city is centrally controlled with facial recognition with CCTV cameras, and I can imagine that there might be drones collecting uh, information on people, specifically um, those who oppose the regime. There were quite a couple of examples of people um, 
saying something on 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 telegram or on on russian social networks which uh the authorities didn't quite approve of and so this person then goes shopping and her face gets scanned by the uh camera uh, her face id gets matched to her profile and then she gets an fsb uh, visit when she gets back home they're waiting for her to question her so at least um, from my understanding, such technologies are already being used to the advantage of uh, population control. Obviously, these governments will never say we're using drones or we're using this or that technology to make sure that we're spying on our population. China uses drones also in conjunction with other tools to control the population. And those other tools include um, their famous application WeChat, for instance, developed by um a Chinese company called Tencent. And so Tencent is uh, not, you know, it's an autonomous company, but it's cooperating with the CCP and it can provide um, data on users if needs be. So during COVID, those who were trying to investigate independently, they were kind of banned from WeChat. And if you get, get banned from WeChat, your entire life crumbles. They were jailed as well. But um, the, the thing is that the entire kind of life of Chinese when it comes to shopping, taxi, communication, everything, everything runs through this WeChat app. So I think there is a way of integrating these kinds of technologies with drones or with CCTVs, specifically because some of the drones are very small for surveillance of the population that most people wouldn't be able to tell the difference whether it's a drone or a bird flying overhead. And in China specifically, I know the drones have been used, but again, I, I am not sure they for what purpose they have been used because the Chinese will never disclose that they're using the drones for that specific purpose. So I can imagine that if they gather that data, that data will be stored somewhere and, and, and used for identifying people who might be unfriendly to the regime or who might be um, pushing a specific narrative, narrative that is not um, favorable to, to the regime and so on. So it's not surprising, perhaps, and you know, with the advent of AI now, um, it's much more scary how this kind of surveillance will be um, will intensify as uh, systems will be able to process much more data than human operators who are receiving this data constantly behind the computers. And so you, it will be much easier to locate potential threats, uh, you know, in a good and in a bad way. Um, so it is kind of becoming scary and disconcerting, especially if, you know, depending on the moral compass of those using drones for these specific purposes, you know, if, if they decide to integrate AI um, to identify people, then there is no way you can hide. Mm -hmm. If you have um, drones being a kind of a part of a smart city and, and it, in these drones can communicate and with, with, with other systems within the smart city um, complex. So it sounds to me like uh, the technology is just technology. It can be used for really good purposes, very helpful purposes for people, uh, for the environment, for agriculture, for other industries. Uh, but we need to make sure that we're thinking about uh, appropriate checks and balances to make sure that those technologies are not abused 
and, and that's part of what makes the liberal democratic order uh, important is that we have these checks and balances on the power of government uh, because we can see that it can be abused very quickly, and we see that already in the more authoritarian governments around the world. Is that, is that a good summary? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good summary because, like anything, it is a tool, and the user determines a purpose. So the tool itself cannot be bad or evil. Okay. Uh, so, Dr. Marone, I'd like to turn really into the international arena now and discuss a place where drones are being used in combat. You mentioned it a little bit a, a while ago, and that's obviously Ukraine. Uh, but it's also, amazingly enough, inside Russia. <laughs> there have been drones being used inside Russia. Uh, because I know Russian security is an interest of yours, you just discussed it, I'd like to ask you to bring us up to speed on how these unmanned platforms are being used in the in the Russian invasion of Ukraine, how the Ukrainians are using, uh, using unmanned platforms to fight back uh, against the Russians. That's a very good question, because uh, I think there seems to be a little bit of a misconception when it comes to the use of drones. When we think of last year and Bayraktar TV2s were all over the news, and everybody was thinking that these Bayraktars are helping the Ukrainians to actually push the Russians back and, and uh, push the Russians back and, and to um, exploit um, the, the, these drones for surveillance and for um, target acquisition and target elimination when it comes to Russian S-300 air defense systems. However, um, what we have to understand is that Ukraine didn't have, have the same kind of um, capabilities in terms of air power, and as of now, no no side has um, air superiority, even less air supremacy. So Ukraine had to improvise, and Ukrainian domestic producers have um, produced civilian drones, and when the conflict started, a lot of them switched to adapt their civilian-made drones to be used for military purposes. And those drones never received any publicity, unfortunately enough, because they have been used to solve um, kind of more tactical and operational battlefield tasks rather than kind of the big Bayraktars um, that we've been seeing in the media. And so the Ukrainians have been using drones, and specifically those smaller drones like Leleka, for um, for surveillance, for for, for um, looking at you know the movements of the Russian troops, um, locating their artillery batteries, um, command and control, uh, looking at their logistical nodes. So uh, they have been quite uh, successful when it comes to to the use of those drones. They have also used drones, obviously, to confuse um, the or overload the, the um, air defenses, the the Russian air defenses. So basically, um, strike capabilities, um, drones have been used for decoy and for um, ISR from, from kind of the Ukrainian side. And, and when the Ukrainians started using drones um, this, or relying heavily on drones and seeing kind of the benefits that you don't need to do battle reconnaissance if you can send a drone and it can solve that task for you, the Russians have realized, because the Russians have been crippled by, by sanctions of 2014 after the annexation of Crimea. So those specific sanctions uh, didn't affect the Russian economy per se. What they did affect is Russian industrial and military industrial complex, mm. which made it very difficult for the Russians to maintain their, on the one hand, their space program has suffered greatly um, and their, their um, kind of military industrial developments, including the development of drones. 
And so the kind of the drones that the Russians had at that stage were quite heavy. The Orlan 10, for instance, a reconnaissance drone, but they didn't have those kind of small drones, um, which I will come in in a second, in order to have that flexibility. And so you had that huge, expensive Orlan drone flying overhead and, you know, um, it would depend on weather conditions, how useful it was you know, in terms of its optical sensors, and it will also depend on... Um, uh, the, uh, the, the because the the Russians and their space program has suffered, so they didn't have the same kind of navigation capabilities as the Ukrainian had. So their, their GLONASS didn't have enough satellites in the orbit to 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 um, provide exact location on the targets, which you know uh, impacted also Russian targeting. So they didn't have good reconnaissance from their drones. They didn't have any good reconnaissance uh, from their space assets. And they were seeing the Ukrainians using these smaller drones um, for to solve their battlefield tasks and quite successfully. And so the, the this capabilities gap um, became very apparent in April 2022 when the Russians decided, well, you know, we have to do something about it. And they actually did something about it uh, because they don't have the domestic um, capability of quickly developing something, turning something around. Yes, they used Chinese DJI Mavic drones, both sides did, and China decided to not uh, export any, or, or um, at least China said that um, DJI shouldn't be exporting any drones to China, to Russia or Ukraine because they didn't want to get involved into this conflict. And so th that was kind of the time when the Russians had to think of how they are going to solve their capabilities gap. And so that's where Iran came in. And we remember the um, uh, Shahed-128, Shahed-136, um, and there was, I think, Shahed-121. So there are quite quite several, um, um, several types of drones that Russia has purchased from Iran. And apparently they, uh, they are now establishing their domestic production of those. So Shahed-136, the most famous one, the loitering munition, or used as a loitering munition, became uh, geranium too, which is a nice flower, but the kind of uh, the 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 way it was used is not as nice as its name. So the, what the Russians essentially did, so how they started using those specific drones as as kamikaze drones, um, in order to overwhelm Ukrainian air defenses, especially now with Western air defenses, they don't want to waste their expensive missiles, so they have those drones fly the air defense system shoots out the missiles the expensive missiles for those cheap drones and then you know it increases the chance of a russian um caliber missile coming through and not being shot down by by an ukrainian air defense system which is already uh, they, they are already suffering from shortage of both air defense systems and um, ammunition for air defense systems and obviously they were used to kind of uh to crash into targets normally they would be used in pairs uh, in order to strike targets so that's kind of the the way the russian the russians have made use of those drones so less for reconnaissance but more as um to, as to replace their expensive missiles with really cheap drones and to make sure that whenever they use missiles that they can reach their target um given their problems with targeting anyway so unfortunately uh, dr moron we're, we're down to almost just about 15 minutes left in our show today. The time just flies by. Uh, I, I do want to say one thing. You, you highlighted really well how the Ukrainians uh, adapted civilian-made uh, UAVs uh, 
for military use. We, we have this term in the United States, they, they, they MacGyvered it, <laughs> based on a 1980s TV show about, called MacGyver. Uh, it's amazing what they've been able to do with those, uh, those small uh, civilian, uh, almost play toys that, uh, that people have to, to be able to uh, surveil, uh, run reconnaissance missions, uh, target Russian uh, tanks and, and troop concentrations and whatnot for precision fires. Just just amazing stuff. So you mentioned so far drone use by the Ukrainians and Russians. You mentioned the fact that Iran has uh, started supplying uh, drones to the Russians. Uh, if you could just very briefly, how many nations around the world right now have an active unmanned platform uh, industry? And h- how expansive is the defense, security, military, and intelligence application side of this relatively new technology, and how, how lethal has it become? Are unmanned platforms becoming essentially the go-to items for countries to purchase at the international arms fairs held around the world annually? Maybe if you could just give us like three minutes, that'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. I think most players are now having, uh, most major players, at least, you know, the, the NATO countries, uh, the U.S., Britain, Israel is a major player, China uh, Russia, so we have they have started working on drones back in 1950s. Uh, all those countries, first drones being seen in Vietnam. So I, I think all major countries now have their domestic drone production, and so um, the now we're having both kinds of kind of ISR drones and also the majority of drones um, th- that that are very uh, popular. Obviously, have strike capabilities, and so I, I cannot. You know, I, I don't have the number in, in terms of to estimate the share of um, how of the proliferation of these drones, but I think um, given the tendency and, and, and given, you know, there are, there are people who are saying the, the future of warfare will be um, contactless without people, there will be just drones fighting each other and the kind of um, autonomous uh, vessels like tanks will be fighting each other without any soldiers, but I think they will be, be become more common and um, much more prominent in conflicts, especially as many countries such as Iran um, and all kind of the the Middle Eastern countries are starting to either manufacture very, very cheap accessible drones or and or export these drones to international players, which makes it um, very worrisome because you don't want those drones getting into wrong hands. And, and, you know, I think in Ukraine we have seen how easy it is to modify a civilian drone to to make it um, lethal. And we have also seen the kind of the the Yemeni Houthis using drones. And so when you're thinking, or or, or the Islamic State for that matter, and so if you think about those non-state actors using drones and and, and being able to get their hands on that technology, that, that... is becoming indeed worrying and so what i i think is lacking is that now we have all these kind of drone developments and, and you know uh, even the, talking about autonomous um unmanned systems do we have efficient countermeasures for them yeah that's a great point do we know how to neutralize them yeah uh, for our audience you're listening to national Security this week on kymn radio and i'm your host john olson Our guest today is Dr. Marina Miron from King's College London in the United Kingdom, and we're discussing the current state of unmanned platforms for both domestic and international use. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. You can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Dr. Miron, we've we've covered a great deal of ground this morning, (laughs) but I want to push the envelope just a bit more if we could. Unmanned platform operations by military forces are are now happening all around the world. Uh, You just covered that nicely for us. The U.S. Navy's Fifth Fleet has built a, a, a network of unmanned platforms, aerial platforms, surface, and even subsurface, that are augmenting the coalition intelligence picture in the Persian and Arabian Gulf areas. 
And, and that capability, that platform in Fifth Fleet, will certainly expand into the Red Sea and the northern Indian Ocean over time. We also know the U.S. Air Force's new B-21 stealth bomber will be capable of operations without any crew on board. It can operate completely autonomously. And it's also likely uh, that the next-generation air dominance platforms that the U.S. Navy and the U- U.S. Air Force are, are developing, sort of replacements for the F-22, F-35 uh, platforms, will likely be capable of unmanned operations as well. It's even possible they'll be designed purely as unmanned platforms to avoid the pitfalls of human frailty in the cockpit. And here what I'm thinking about is the fact that humans have to breathe, eat, drink, use the bathroom, and they're limited to how many G-forces they can take when maneuvering in a, in a threat environment. What are your predictions for the future of unmanned platforms uh, and their capabilities for both deterrence and should deterrence fails for combat? Well, it's an interesting, it's a, it's a very interesting development, and we're looking not only at the development of kind of uh, those types of drones, we're also looking at development of different kind of human augmentation technologies, because um, you want to use a minimum amount of force, you, you want to mechanize it as much as possible, and, and the less uh, human involvement there is, that's why you have kind of uh, long-range missiles, that's when we thought there will be no kind of uh, real combat going on. I, I think that um, it's a very interesting development in order to protect and to reduce the human suffering, especially of your own troops, and to reduce the need of deploying the troops. Um, what we have also to think about is in which environment such uh, drones will be operating, such as F-35, because um, we're talking about airspace. If you have contested airspace, it is difficult. The benefit is um, you lose a lot of money if an F-35 is being shut down. However, you don't lose a pilot. And, you know, training the pilot, the pilot is somewhere uh, many miles away. So that might be kind of... um, a benefit in, in a sense that you would be saving human lives. But as I said, again, you have to think about uh, the the deployment as well. You will have to have ground crews somewhere to deploy those drones. You will have to have uh, engineers to for maintenance and sustainment. So you cannot completely remove humans out of the equation and you will have to have humans on site uh, for those specific purposes. Um, there is another point I want to say, and in terms of kind of reducing human suffering and kind of making it more about technology, and if you lose a piece of technology, it's expensive, but it's not as bad as um, losing human life, is the impact that these um, uh, kinds of drones or operating these drones has on drone pilots. And apparently, uh, in terms of kind of the, the physical impact is different, but uh, when it comes to psychological impact, there are studies that show that it doesn't necessarily exclude um, people from having um, post-traumatic stress disorder being triggered by looking at the footage of, you know, Hellfire missiles killing civilians on a big screen, because, you know, some have kind of prepared um, operating drones um, to a, a computer game, which is in a sense unfair. So I, I think we also need to think about how we can better prepare the Air Force or the Navy mentally, because there will be essentially people operating these drones at least until there is some kind of you know resolution when it comes to integrating AI systems and, and having them operate semi-autonomously or perhaps autonomously for kind of reconnaissance purposes. Um, how we're going to solve those problems. 
Uh, so we have just about uh, five minutes left. Uh, I always like to give my guests uh, the final word. Uh, what final thoughts would you like to leave with our listeners regarding unmanned platforms, either domestically or in the international arena, or, or both? Well, um, thank you, John. I, I'd like to actually address both. And on the one hand, um, I would like to say that um, when we're talking about domestic unmanned platforms, I think there is a lot more that can be done, and um, these platforms can be leveraged much better, um, given the interests of, of international actors such as the European Union um, in integrating those platforms. So that that you know, both, both in terms of efficiency and in, in terms of um, the economies, there can be a lot of benefit in, in in integrating these platforms. And I think there needs to be done. Uh, there needs to be work done on, on the level of explaining this to people and of bringing in this key stakeholder and getting them interested, getting companies interested in cooperating. Because right now, a lot of the drone manufacturers they are thinking more kind of a defense industry rather than kind of uh, civilian purposes. And I think that. Um, there is a, also a need to think of civilian drones or drones used for civilian purposes um, of how they can be modified in order to remove some of the existing concerns such as privacy because when engineers were designing drones for military surveillance they didn't really think about you know protecting <laughs> anybody's privacy so to remove those concerns and to kind of smoothen the integration of such technologies which can be beneficial and most likely will be beneficial the um, kind of military side of the use of drones. I think it's very dangerous to say that future wars will look like X or Y. And I think um, we should be prepared for everything and nobody has expected, let's say, the likes of Syria where you have a non-state actor with pretty good military capabilities, including drones, and I'm referring to the Islamic State, which is kind of using Second World War kind of tactics trenches, and so you, you have urban combat, and you also have kind of high-tech drones. You have the, the war in Ukraine where you're seeing First and Second World War tactics tanks used in conjunction with drones, used in conjunction with air power, used in conjunction with precision munitions. So I think it's very dangerous to think that um, in the future whatever we are developing now in terms of drones, that they will replace the human or the need of deploying the human. That being said, I, I think those developments are great because that will reduce the burden, at least to a certain degree, when it comes um, to involving, involving troops or deploying troops. It will probably be also much easier on the logistics and um, kind of increase um, the, the speed of deployment. So will help in, in other areas as well as um, obviously ensuring that um, less um, military um, personnel is harmed. Uh, so we'll have to start bringing our show to a close for this week. Dr. Marina Marone, currently a postdoctoral researcher in the War Studies Department at King's College London in the United Kingdom. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Are there any resources you might highlight for our listeners so they can dive in to learn more about unmanned platforms, particularly the capabilities of platforms today, and maybe where the technology is taking us, uh, and even on the ethics of unmanned platforms. Any resources? Well, on the ethics, um, it's very difficult because right now 
there are different kind of ethical discussions going on on the use of drones and uh, especially after a decade of uh, bashing the predator and you know saying how unethical it is um generally speaking there are, there is a good book on drone wars which talks about the development of uh, and the use of drones by the united states specifically for counterterrorism missions which is a good start on um, civilian drones i cannot really think of a kind of of a book uh, specifically but the European Union and um, Drone Insight website, they have quite good data in terms of the kind of the numbers of um, and different sectors of how the drones are being used by different industries. And then obviously uh, the manufacturers themselves, um, Maratec for one, uh, has excellent information on, on, on their uh, sea vessels and their unmanned sea vessels and how those are being used and, and, and their capabilities. So I always go and look, you know, what, what do you have uh, in the industry? Defense news, excellent stuff. They have um, great articles on latest developments. Uh, C4IRS.net is another resource that I like to use. They also bring in a lot of kind of more military stuff, but um, As I said, I'm not uh, very aware of, you know, civilian uh, newspapers oriented towards civilian publishing about drones unless there is a kind of um, big issue like was that uh, recent test about AI powered drone allegedly killing the operator in a test that was kind of <laughs> in the news a couple of weeks. So uh, I, I think, you know, when, when we're talking about the likes of the Guardian, um, you are not likely to see uh, articles saying, oh, dr- drones are really good. Why don't we integrate them a- a- into our civilian airspace rather than uh, saying, oh, drones are evil. They even want to kill the operator. So it not, it's not just, you know, the people around it who are in danger. So, yeah, it, as far as uh, kind of military uh, drones are concerned, C4IS, NET, uh, Military Times, Defense News, all, all those websites um, have great stuff. Uh, Rusi Journal publishes also great studies on drones um, used by kind of different countries. or they, they also have something on Russian drones. So I, I would encourage people to go and check them out. Uh, Dr. Moran, I'm going to ask you one final question that sort of popped into my head as I was listening to you talk about all this stuff. Uh, so hopefully we can go just a couple minutes uh, longer here. Uh, there are we have a lot of international treaties that that are designed to constrain uh, uh, proliferation of dangerous technologies, capabilities, things like that. I mean, we have a really good biological weapons convention. There's an international uh, convention on uh, chemical weapons. Uh, the, the the nuclear uh, nonproliferation treaty is not unfortunately not doing very well. But there are no treaties being talked about right now, uh, at least by most governments around the world, about constraining the proliferation of unmanned platforms. Is, is that right? And do you do you have any thoughts on why that is? That's that's an interesting one, and I think you know it's not the only legal area that it remains gray in a sense. You know, we are also having cyber. the same issue with with cyber. Yes, yeah. exactly. With cyber with AI, and I think. The problem with that is, is first to come to terms uh, with definitions, you know, what is considered to be an unmanned platform. And it's a, a seemingly very simple answer. But different governments, such as defining terrorism, uh, the United States has different definition than the kind of the official EU definition. And then each country has their own definition. So when we're talking about, say, countering terrorism, we're, we're countering something else internally than, than the guys in the United States do. And so I, I think that there are a lot of kind of legal hurdles to come up with with a legal framework 
especially an international legal framework. And there might be something in the working, but because it's so difficult to come to the lowest common denominator, and because it's so difficult to develop regulations which would cover several countries, let's say kind of in, in, in even in the military domain, um, that it is unlikely that we're going to see anything in the near future. And because we have so many different types of unmanned platforms, so that means you would have to uh, regulate conduct in every single area. You cannot just lump them under one category and say they are either good or bad. And so there needs to be a lot of work done when uh, when defining the, the 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 what it is and what it can do and what it shouldn't be doing and where it's allowed to do that and who is allowed to operate it so i think with so many variables and with so many different participants at hand we will we'll still be looking at years unless something very very bad happens and causes an international scandal that's where kind of policymakers try to act more kind of ad hoc and say okay we'll put it there as a placeholder, but this is prohibited for now. Yeah, there, there are no uh, there are no incentives in the, in the international system right now to constrain the development of unmanned technologies because it's they're they're happening so quickly. Uh, nobody wants to constrain what where we might go with these, at least not yet. So we'll have to see where where this takes us. Doctor Marine Marone, thank you for sharing your knowledge and expertise uh, expertise with us today. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. That closes this edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today here on KYMN Radio. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week. Have a great finish of your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit, Check their website, cybersecuritysummit.org, for a listing of their upcoming webinar series.